The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, we talk with former professional snowboarder turned apparel design leader, JJ Collier. We talk about his journey from athlete to creative, and lessons learned from Solomon, Spider, Ralph Lauren, and his latest venture starting Collier Brands. Okay, welcome back everyone. This is Chase and joining me today is JJ Collier. Um, you've, you've been to so many brands. I, I, I don't want to belabor the, the bio, but I want to do it justice at the same time. You've, uh, you know, professional athlete, um, you know, snowboard athlete, um, you know, spent time at Solomon Spider VF and now have really charted your own course and, and building Collier brands, helping, helping brands with, you know, a, a number of services that we can get into, but, um, appreciate you jumping on and taking some time to, to chat today. That's just great. Thank you. Yeah, and I have to mention mention who who brought us together in a previous episode. We had Kyle Snar, um, and we we talked a little bit about his background, his journey into the industry, and and Kyle's a, a family friend. I don't know if you listened to that episode, but um, but uh, yeah, kind of kind of fun connection there. We were able to reconnect um, and and just talk about his his pathway into the industry, and and he brought us together. So I'm glad that he he was willing to do that, and we've been able to have some good conversations. But wanted to dive into your journey into the industry um, because of all the people that we've talked to, we really haven't talked to anyone. Well, no one has the same pathway, right? Um, right. But we really haven't talked to anyone that's kind of gone through the journey that you have. Um, you know, starting really on the, you know, as a professional athlete, um, getting acquainted with the gear, using the gear to its extreme, and then transitioning into design. Um, and then you know, going that path, working for different brands, uh, major brands, having major influence there, and then kind of, again, charting your own course and starting your own thing. So I thought, it was, I thought it's, it's an interesting story to say the least. And we haven't had anyone else who's, who's really gone down that path. So I wanted to, to dive into some of that with you today. I'm ready. Well, to start, I, I just want to know a little bit more about your introduction to the outdoor industry. Like how did you, what was your first introduction? Oh boy. First introduction. That's great. Um, well, I'm from a very small town in North Carolina, um, up in the Western mountains of by Asheville and Boone and a little place called Banner Elk. I guess my first introduction to the outdoor industry was a, a shop called edge of the world, which was in our town. Um, really started by a local family, really neat shop. You know, it was my first introduction they, It's so funny at the time they were doing a bunch of cross country skiing stuff because we had these small resorts in my town, but we had, all kinds of open land and plenty of places to go on cross-country ski. So they were, you know, that was my first introduction to Patagonia and Chouinard and Varnaise, you know, like, you know, like a shop that actually had cool gear in our, in our town was a big deal. Um, 
and uh, and later on they became you know after I after I sort of started uh, snowboarding and started to spread the word about that and you know I wasn't the first but in my little circle of friends my brother and I were the, you know sort of the first to get on that train and eventually wound up talking uh, talking Greg the owner of Edge into uh, into into getting on board you know and uh, and and for years after Edge of the World wasn't just Burton's um, biggest dealer in, 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 in the Southeast. I think they were the, they were certainly the largest East coast dealer and, and were, was one of the edge was one of the most important shops for a long time. So it's, it's funny. I've never been asked that question, but, um, edge was, was, was certainly part of my intro. Well, it's interesting the impact that some of these, well, all of the retailers have right on introducing people to, well, was that your introduction to, to boards? No, or, no. Okay, you, no, they, you had a history no, beforehand. Yeah, that's what I mean. They were an outdoor shop. They were doing okay. rafting and canoeing in the summer and cross country tours in the winter. I mean, we're talking, dude. We're talking way back here. Right. This yeah. is like, you know, uh, I got my first first real board in '86. You know, okay. so the following year, I'm like, Greg, you got to get on this. Okay, and, so you, you introduced know. them to that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I feel I certainly feel like I did, and I, Greg has been kind of uh, to back that story up over the years. You know, because it it transformed their business. It sort of some way transformed the town, you know, edge of the world wound up becoming quite a, quite a destination for, for our little town. You know, you couldn't go up to the mountains without sort of dropping by edge to talk to the team and see the latest stuff. And, you know, it was a, it was a, it was an epicenter for, for, for fun, you know, in, in Banner Elk. It was really cool. Well, Still it's, it's interesting that really just some of these movers, right. People, the, the, the early adopters, um, can make such an impact like yourself, right? Like introducing, um, you know, the sport or, you know, really pushing for them to carry the product, the ripple effects that that can have, right? And how many other people got introduced to the sport because that, you know, they started carrying the product and yeah. just interesting to think about the the ripple effects. And um, again, in the age that we live in now, right? Especially to, especially now, like specialty retail, um, it's kind of going through a lot. Um, to say the least. Um, but it, it, I just think back on, we did one of these history of gear episodes on some of the, the hubs, the hotspots of gear around the country. And, and the individual that I was talking with, who's kind of a historian of the outdoor industry, um, we, we talked about Arcata, California, and that was a, a, just an, a part of the country I was, wasn't really on my radar and certainly not for gear history. And he talked about how there's this one outdoor retailer that really sparked the outdoor industry there. And it was called the Arcata transit authority. It was like okay. a bike shop that started right. carrying other products. And, and because they started carrying product, um, you started seeing more people get into outdoor sports. And then from there, uh, people started making their own gear and there's kind of this snowball effect that happens once you introduce gear into a community, right? Yeah. Um, once people start using it, then they start figuring out what's wrong with it and how they could make it better, which is, you know, I wonder if that had an effect on you when you uh, really got into the sport professionally. Um, I guess we can talk a little bit about that. How, how did you get into the professional um, side of things? And then I, I want to touch on like, how does that impact how you look at look at products. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, like I said, we started very young, um, within a couple of years, uh, the second year I was snowboarding. I, I, I don't know how, but I managed to talk my, my dad into 
driving my brother and I to to Vermont to the U.S. Open, um, which you know it's not it's, it's not at Stratton anymore, but it's still the biggest snowboard single snowboard event of the year. And um, anyway, back then, you know, kids kids from North Carolina show up, and everyone else is from Oregon and California and Colorado and, and Vermont and everywhere else. Nobody even knew we had snowboarding or mountains, you know, resorts down there. Um, and I won. I won the junior moguls, and you know. I'm a junior in high school and I'm sponsored by Burton and Oakley and like these dream, this dream just exploded on, on, on my life with, you know, kind of without warning. I, I, I knew I could ride. I didn't expect to go up there and win, you know, <laughs> I've been snowboarding for two years. So, um, that happened. Um, finished high school with this dream of moving to Breckenridge and moved to Breckenridge, rode the amateur tour um, for a couple of years, won it both times and decided to turn pro uh, in 92 and, and to keep it short, you know, rode the pro tour for many years, um, had a couple more podiums at the U S open and just had a fantastic time kind of on the, on really the first wave of, of snowboarding really starting to happen, you know? Um, there was a wave of pros before sort of my, my crew. And we looked up to those guys. They were the, the pioneers, you know, Terry Kidwell and Craig Kelly and all those guys. But like, we got to ride the first big wave of like, okay, X games, Olympics, you know, um, they're actually being prize money above three figures, um, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. It was a total blast. But yeah, in that time, I'm like, I'm where I'm living in this product every day, right? You know what works, you know what's garbage, you know how long uh, things are going to last after a while, what you know, and and so yeah, so you just have this you develop this inherent understanding of of functional product, and you you understand the weak points, and you know you understand what's fluff and what's actually what you actually use every day, you know you know what I mean? Because there's a lot of that. Oh, so and so is doing something, so we better do it. Me too, garbage, you know, um, that that isn't always meaningful, and so yeah, so it did it certainly shaped my, my, my capability, um, long before I knew I wanted to be a designer, you know, but there was a, a secondary thing of like, kind of having had my eyes opened to the world, you know, with a bit of travel and like the international writers and athletes and like, you know, it was way, it, it kind of, it opened my awareness uh, more than I realized sort of at the time, you know? So I'm in the pro tour. I'm 26, 27 years old. The 17 year olds are coming up, you know, and I'm like, this is going to get ugly. I don't want to be the old guy at the club. You know, like I want, <laughs> I need to get out of here and figure out what's next for me. And so that's right around the time that I, um, you know, that I bought my sewing machine. Um, it was, uh, uh, 97, which I love. It sounds like the dark ages. I know, but important to me. So like I was heading out for my last pro tour year, bought my sewing machine. My, my, a girlfriend, now wife of 22 years, whatever, was like, all right, he's going for it. This is different. You know, I didn't see a sewing machine coming and uh, brought it with me out West, you know, and when my roommates are playing PlayStation or, you know, when we're, when we're done in the half pipe, I didn't, I didn't come home and, and sit on the couch. I came home and started, you know, started trying to figure out how to turn a seam properly and, and, you know, what a, what a, what a good neckline looks like and so on. Totally knew nothing just started cutting fabric and putting stuff together. Um, didn't even know enough at the time in retrospect to like cut up a t-shirt and get a good armhole, you know, like, like all of that stuff I just started making stuff. And, um, and so that was, that was sort of the, you know, that was the, the transition. I, I think you have other questions. I don't want to give the whole thing on one answer, but I, that was the sort of the transition. I'm like, all right, I've got a couple of years left of this while I have the time to do it while there's some money, you know, and prize money and, and pay from my sponsors, you know, in the later years. I got to use this time. So that's when I started selling. 
what's well, an interesting dilemma that a lot of athletes face, right? And uh, there's not a clear direction as to well, what do you do afterwards, right? It's like, yeah. well, like getting in and doing it professionally is it seems like that's the pinnacle, right? That's the peak, like you made it. Um, but it is there's a, it's a short uh, there's a, a short window, right? Whatever sport yeah. it is, right? Some or you are get shorter hurt, than others, you right? Know? Yeah, yeah. Or you sure. get hurt, right? And it's all over, right? Um, yeah, totally. So and and sports like I think snow sports, like as opposed to you know the NBA, right? It's like okay, there's there's a lot more money involved in in you know some of these other sports, right? Okay, maybe you can do that and bank on that for the rest of your life, and yeah, um, just th- there's other sports that maybe don't have that you know, that it's not that same level, not to diminish, you know, um, you know, snow sports at all. It's, it's just different dynamics, different economics, right? There were no billionaires at the time. Right. And that's the thing. Like there were, there were a couple of guys making up, pulling a pretty good salary, you know, from, from endorsements and, and, and certainly prize money to some extent, but this was way before Sean White, you know, um, uh, you know, in, in many, a good, I don't know, 10 years maybe before it really, really started to blow up and corporate sponsors started coming on and you, you know, you had, you had millionaires. Right. So it's interesting that you, you know, were other people at the same time, other athletes thinking like you were, it's like, what am I going to do next? What's after this? Or are you too busy caught in the moment? No, 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 definitely. Definitely. There were a few, like one of my, one of my best, you know, one of my, one of my regular travel partners and good friends, Frank Wells, um, you know, it, it, it normally came down to three or four of us getting on the same flight, renting a car and having a total blast, you know, like, mm-hmm. so between like Frank Wells and JJ Thomas, who went on to be an Olympian, like Frank has gone on to be like the, the premier uh, pipe, half pipe cutter in the world. So he cuts X games, he cuts mm-hmm. everything. And for, yeah, as I was starting to pick up my sewing machine, he was like at Mount Hood learning how to cut the first 20 foot half pipes, you know, like well Mm. before the machines could do it. He was like, this is where it's going. People are going to want to go 20 feet. You know, we were going 10 feet out of a 10 foot pipe or, or four feet out of a six foot pipe, you know, Mm. like it just, it was changing before our very eyes. And so Frank was really ahead of that. Um, interesting. I believe JJ has gone on to be like Sean White's coach and stuff. I might be misquoting, but I'm pretty sure that's what JJ has been up to. So yeah, there were a number of people who are not, I don't know what people were thinking, but I know that the folks in my circle, I could tell who was sort of, you know, figuring how they could turn this into something meaningful. Right. Did, did you have any distinct moment where you realized people, well, you, you probably had this experience because you were working with the brands. You probably, did, did you ever get into the, did you ever have the experience of working with brands on developing new product for you? Or was, what was that relationship like? And did that open your eyes to, oh, people actually make this stuff? I guess, what, what, what was that first moment for you when you recognized, oh, people get paid to make this stuff? And that's oh, something suppose. that I could do. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I suppose I knew that. You know, I'm, I had been a, um, a bit of a student of, from, from a very young age. Like, I, was tr- I, was, I, I saw things I wanted. I knew there were things I wanted, you know? Like, uh, like when I saw my first Porsche 911 at 10 years old or whatever, I'm like, okay, that. Hmm. It wasn't a Corvette. It wasn't a Ferrari. It was a 911, you know? And there was something inherent about that that I know now really triggered me and really shaped my, my approach to, to product. Um, Ralph Lauren adds, you know, uh, at, at 11 or 12 years old, I was starting to get this idea. Oh, is that what life looks like outside of Banner Elk? I want a piece of that, you know? Hmm. It's imaginary, but it looked possible, you know? And so, so I knew that there was good work being done out in the world. Um, 
I, I, I know now that it was as plain as day that I wanted to be in this industry um, because I look back on some of the feedback I was doing, like I wrote for Spider as an athlete in the early 90s, and I look at the drawings that I did to provide athlete feedback was not what they were getting from other athletes. You know, it's just, I know that for sure. The detail was just ridiculous and off the charts and in color with Zoom views and stuff all by hand. It was so obvious. Um, but it didn't occur to me that maybe I wanted to be a designer until, um, until a, a little bit later. And for what it's worth, it was always fashion. I didn't want to be in the ski or snowboard industry at all. I wanted to go and, and be Ralph, you know? Mm. And so that's why it's kind of funny that my snowboard career and all of this stuff wound up kind of circling around and actually bringing me back into, you know, into, into technical outerwear, ski and snowboard. Mm. Well, I, I asked that question because it's, I, because a lot of people go through life not really recognizing that everything in this world is designed, right? Like mm-hmm. there's, there's some intention that goes behind, you know, all the, the products that are around us and the environments that are around us, you know, everything, right? Um, and, and I like sharing one of, uh, a story of one of our students um, and how she discovered product design as she was hiking. I don't remember which, which trail it was, but she... Um, she was just staring at the person's backpack in front of her for hours on end, right. On this long trail. And that's when she recognized like all the details and, and the thought goes, that goes into the, the product. And that's when she recognized, I want to do that. Like people do that and get paid. Wow. Yeah, um, right. So I, I have to ask, you know, what, what that experience was for, for each of each of my guests who are designers. So it, it's, it's always interesting to, to see, you know, what was that moment for, for other people? Um, you know, oh, sorry, Chase, real quick. What's yeah. funny, there were a couple of instances too later in my career where it's like I would um, try to give, try to provide some feedback and, and you know, you might get something like, ah, oh, it's cool, we've got designers for that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's funny too how much that has changed. Like Spider was receptive to athlete feedback. And in some, at least one other instance, it was like, no, we kind of go, we've got designers for that. And I get it. They were paying designers a lot to do, quote, that. But it's so funny too how much athlete feedback and like real end user feedback from the field has has um, has impacted the brands that have uh, you know that have that uh, that embrace that and you can see where how successful they are from from that pairing pairing great designers with like really great end users uh, is you know is a, it sounds obvious now but that's a that wasn't always the case right well participatory design right is kind of the the norm now it's like oh well we need to bring the user in from the beginning right and if that user is an athlete or just you know your everyday user it's like no we we need them to be an active participant in the creation of this product it can't just yeah. be us in a room you know in a vacuum creating what we think is cool it's we we have to have you know, the people who are actually going to be using it actively involved. Well, and, you're, um, and, you're, and, and the latter, I think even more so lately, you're absolutely right. It's one thing to, to, to design for ninjas, you know, who are the best mm-hmm. in the world at everything, you know, at their, at their thing. That's another thing to really think about how that actually does trickle down to a real world end user. Like, are you solving problems for the people that are going to buy this as opposed to the people who are going to be given it um, is, uh, is an interesting parallel. Well, it's a challenge that the industry faces, right? Because we want to make the best of the best product for those people who are, you know, pushing the limits. But let's face it, most people aren't going to be using product to push the limits. They're going to use it to go out and get the mail or, you know, go, you know, just go out and go on a walk or, you know, that's the, the definition of what is outdoor, I think, is expand in a really good way to be even more inclusive, right, of more activities. It's not always about you know, being, being the best or 
tackling, you know, this, you know, climbing the highest peak or whatever it might be. Um, I guess, what are your, some of your thoughts on that, where you come from a background of, of performance and pushing things to the limits? How has that influenced you from a design perspective? I, I could see it being, you know, you getting a little lost in, okay, I don't know. Did you ever find yourself get, getting caught in a bubble, right? It's like I'm creating for these pinnacle athletes that do you ever find yourself having to ground yourself and pull yourself back and recognize, okay, not everyone is is striving for what I'm striving for. Does that make that's sense? A, that's a great question. Um, I, I think, I don't know that I, I don't think I've ever got lost in it. I think if, if anything, I start from that, from a place of like, um, authenticity always, but, but wanting to provide the best possible experience to who, whoever I believe to be the end user to be, or whoever I've been briefed the end user is. And yeah, of course we want to always build the formula one stuff and there's a place for that. And I love it. Who doesn't love that? But it's, it's in some ways more challenging to find ways to bring the best possible stuff to more people, you know, mm-hmm. and to have that be a little bit more affordable and have that be more accessible. And nowadays have that be more sustainable, you know, like to be more consciously, um, uh, uh, created. Um, I don't just want to say designed because it's not just designed, you know, as you know, it goes all the way down the, the supply chain. So, so I don't think I've ever gotten lost in, it. I do joke from time to time uh, about being the worst possible person to ask about this and quotes, you know, and reminding, having to remind people around me, well, wait a second, let's make sure we're thinking about this, not from the perspective of tier one snobbery, but from the perspective of like, how are we going to make this happen for real people? You know? Um, So, so I don't think I get lost in it, but I'll be, that's, that's a question I'll be thinking about after we're off the call. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a question that we try to challenge our students with, right? It's like, don't, you can't design for yourself, right? It's like, you have to be designing for other people, you, you know, and when you go and work in the industry, you're not getting paid to make stuff that you necessarily think is cool um, all the time, right? Like, obviously you're being brought into a company because of skill sets you have and perspective and, but it's not every day that you get to sit down and say, well, I think this kind of a jacket is really cool. So I'm going to make it. There's so much more that goes into it than that. Yeah. Well, Um, and especially not in the beginning. I mean, just to clarify that one, that's a, that's a big one. When I'm like sitting with, with, with young people, I'm like, I try to remind them in the, in the nicest possible way that at first, you know, you may not, have a voice in the way that maybe you hoped you would, or that you can eventually, or maybe that you had in school, you know, you might be then the, the sort of the ninja in your peer group uh, at school and then come out and realize, hopefully for you that, you know, how much you don't know. And so that you can have this incredible experience out in the, in the field. Um, but, but, and, and you, you said this eventually, however, you know, you, hopefully you've been hired because someone sees a spark in you and hopefully you're able to like, keep that thing under control while you come up through the ranks and while you sort of become a known quantity in, in, inside a brand. And, and that's when all of a sudden you, you know, you, you realize people are looking up from their phones when you, you know, when you, when you speak in a meeting or whatever, you know, and it's like, okay, I'm finding my way through here. Like people care about what I have to say. Um, Or more importantly, what you have to show, you know, because Mm -hmm. when you start doing reviews or when your stuff's on the wall and it's your time to pitch, like that's when you really get a chance to, you know, to sort of close the deal, but it, it doesn't necessarily happen. Might ha- it happens more in smaller brands, but historically there's a minute there where you're a support person and you build respect and trust that way first, you know, uh, with the ensconced team. And then, then you find your way, you find your way up. I've seen it happen that way many times. It's great. 
Right. Well, it seems like in the beginning, it's okay. Can you deliver? Do you have the technical skill to just get the job done? Right. Can you just deliver on time? Right. Um, And then it seems like you're rewarded later on for the ideas, right? And how much can you push push things forward? And how how much can you think outside of the box? So it's it's having that bare minimum of, okay, do I have the technical skill to deliver? But later on, it seems like what really pays off is you know how you think, right? How you solve real yeah, problems. I, I think that's very well put. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's something that we always try to preach for the students is you got to have both. You got to you know have those technical skills, but you got to you know have have a uh, a process, right? And you've got to be able to communicate that process to other people, and you've got to be passionate about making stuff that matters. And and I want to get into that later on, right? And how you've uh, uh, you know maybe pushed yourself to to you know work on stuff that actually needs to exist and not just make more more things but um yeah i, I want to go back a little bit to to touch on how you even broke in so you you know we're going to take a step back you you got a sewing machine um you're just making making stuff um in your apartment or home at the time what, what was the next step right where did you go from there well, uh, the next step was thinking it was time to leave snowboarding and go back to school. I, I don't think Shannon and I were engaged yet to me. And I'm trying to figure out how in the world I'm going to go forward into the, you know, into the world as an adult. Um, <clears throat> so I left, essentially left snowboarding, um, moved back to the East Coast, attempted to go back to school for like 10 minutes. And I was like, no, this is never going to happen uh, at, this, at, at my age and, and the amount of time it's going to take. And I don't even know what I really want, you know, um, from it. Like, what do I want from said degree? So that was kind of the challenge at the time. It's like, you know, I've been used to like just sort of pulling up my bootstraps and doing what needed to be done as opposed to like following a, a traditional path. And here I was thinking that I needed that and knowing that at least at my age, that wasn't the investment that I needed to make. You know, I had been learning how to make things. Um, I believed I could tell a story. And so we just sort of, um, I, I told Shannon, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to stop everything, um, build a collection, have a fashion show and launch my own brand. And, and, and it all went to plan. I mean, here I am a self-taught sewer on a home sewing machine built like 35 pieces, got some friends from my little part-time job at J crew, you know, still worked at working retail. And I was like, all right, guys, who wants to be a model, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, anyway, held this fashion show. Um, got a little bit of press afterwards, which was great. But I mean, the next day for, I, I mean, the, the key thing, Chase was the next day I considered myself a designer. Like I went to bed after the fashion show and I woke up the next day and I wasn't JJ the snowboarder anymore. I, at least as far as I was concerned, I was JJ the designer, you know, and, and the phone started to ring a little bit. Um, people started to come to me with, you know, trying to solve unique problems or maybe they had an idea or whatever. So I was like, I was able to like, sit down, draw a picture of this person, talk them through that drawing, show them kind of what they were going to look like as I saw it. And in most cases, they were like, yeah, let's do this. And, and so all of a sudden, I was, you know, building stuff by hand for one-offs for individuals. How were people finding you at the time? The newspaper. I mean, you know, like, mm. it's so funny. It was like, this was like, you know, this wasn't like, the, I got on the news, I got on the newspaper, like, and so people were just finding me, I think, in the, in the telephone book. In fact, I know they were because there was another John Collier. I was kind of going by John Collier um, and had sort of tried to drop the JJ moniker, which was silly in retrospect. But, um, but yeah, no, and then the phone book, man. Hmm. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, what, <laughs> it crazy. Um, 
And so from there, I guess for for you, I think that mindset, I'm glad that you brought up mindset because how, how did you feel about your technical abilities, right? Because I think we think a lot about designers as being able to create really beautiful polished renderings and, uh, you know, beautiful hand sketching. And how did you feel about those abilities and, and how much of it was just purely the mindset that really got you through and, and you know, helped you push through? I'm exactly the same way I am now, blindly um, confident in my capability and super insecure, Mm. you know? (laughs) I mean, this is like, I don't know if that ever changes. It's like, I I knew I could, I knew I could sew a pair of pants together. I knew I could make a tailored shirt. I certainly knew I could draw. I didn't, I was, uh, you know, horribly concerned about uh, hitting a brick wall or this not working, you know? And like, I had a lot of, um, a lot of eggs in that basket. And I mean, I think I hate to start a sentence with if you're smart, but I should say, I believe that that's the only way to be like, you know what I mean? I just, arrogance comes before the fall. Like I don't, I don't believe in, I don't ever think I'm bulletproof, you know, Oh, I got this. It's no way. And that's what happened to our industry. I think a lot of people were like, Oh, so we'll continue to grow every year forever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, sure you will. You know? So I always stay nervous. I always, I'm always looking, um, you know, the parallel I'll draw is on the racetrack uh, or on, on, on the mountain. Like, you know, if you're looking down at what's, what's right in front of you, you know, and not anticipating the next roller or the next shady spot where it's going to be icy, you know, or, or looking ahead to a, 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 an elevation in, in, in the track, I have a vintage Porsche that I've finally did get one. And so now I drive it as hard as I can, as often as I can. But if there's an elevation in the track where the car is going to get light and you're in the middle of a turn, you're, you know, you're in trouble. And if you weren't looking and anticipating and planning, then, you know, you're, you'll find yourself upside down or in the trees. So I, I, I'm a firm believer in keeping that balance. Um, but at the time, the mindset was absolutely critical. I, in some way, I felt like I had no choice. This had to work. I was not going to go back to school this was my dream. I believed I could, I could help improve people's lives in some way. And so I just, you know, I just kept on figuring it out. Well, along those lines, I, I need to get this, this saying down because I, I bring it up so often, but it's that perfect is the enemy of done or oh, good. good. Oh, yeah. Good. Is it good? Yeah. 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 Um, it's a great expression. Is yeah. that, is that something that you, you find yourself you know, fighting. Um, I, I see it in our students as well. It's, oh, well, my sketches don't look good. So I'm just not going to do it. Right. Mm. It's like, well, of course they're not going to look good if you don't practice. Right. And, and there's this fear of, you know, putting yourself out there and just and taking the first step is, that sounds like a, along the lines of what you just said, right. It's like, you got to push through some of those feelings. Um, there's got to be something that, that helps get you through that. Um, it, is, is that kind of along the lines of, of what you were just saying? Oh, I, I mean, for, I have people in my life who would, who would, who would uh, one of my good buddies who's always busting my chops because it's like, dude, you haven't launched your own brand because you never think it's good enough. Like you're never, you're never it's never going to be good enough for you to put your name on it. And I'm like, well, you know, to some extent, that is one place definitely where perfect has gotten in the way of good just because I haven't been, I, I don't feel like I've cracked the code. And even more in the last five years when it's like, you know, every so much good product in the world. So we don't just need another great, you know, what workwear pair of workwear pants with a different label on it. The only reason I'm going to launch something, not that I want to work for a brand, but like, you know, um, but the only reason I want to do anything anymore is if there's an absolute 
new approach, new solution, new everything, because old is old. Like, and there's no point. I mean, I'm, I, and for the brands I'm working with, it's like, it's so funny, Chase. I'm a design consultant and I find myself sometimes suggesting that people don't do it. It's mm. like, and, and in some cases I've said, no, you got a great idea, go for it. But it's, I feel this desire sometimes to be like, or not don't do it, don't do it unless dot, 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 you know? Mm. And let's find out what the unless is together. Because if you don't know what the unless is, then like, you're, don't, don't throw money at this. There's too much good product in the world um, right. to go head to head with the big players, Pat, whether that's Patagonia or Uniglow. Don't just do another down puffer unless you've got a damn good reason to be here <laughs> and you can tell a genuinely unique new story about why that puffer is here. Right. You know? uh, yeah, that's, that's the challenge of training the next generation of product design students, right? It's like um, you, you're, we're trying to instill that in them is this idea of, well, we don't need more stuff. We've got plenty of stuff in the world. Like how do you bring something new to the table um, and, and think deeper? Um, and that's the challenge for a lot of them. And maybe you've gone through this crisis too, where you realize, oh, I'm just making more stuff and it's not impactful. And I'm contributing to the problem by making more of this stuff. We've had plenty of students who go through that crisis of, oh, do I really just want to make more things um, that, that go against my values? And, and they work, a lot of them work through that. But have you found yourself, you know, fighting that routinely? It sounds like you're able to pick your battles a little bit more now where you can really choose what you want to work on and choose the things that align with your values more. But is that something that you've, I, I imagine with the different brands that you worked with, it's probably something that you, you had to fight against. And, and sometimes you probably had to compromise on, on some things, but what, what was that experience? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, I'm, I'm here on my soapbox talking like a proper idealist. I know, but in theory, that's what we should try to chase. Right? Sure. Um, I, I've, I've been fortunate and I think your students will find the same. Like, like people are always going to want things. It's not like we want to just stop making stuff. We have mm -hmm. a responsibility to make great things. And, you know, like you said, make things that matter. That's been my, one of my hashtags lately, especially as it pertains to some of my personal projects. But like, um, no, we, we just, I, I've been fortunate. And I think, like I said, your students will be working for some of the brands where they've been placed to make, lasting things that people will love. Like, you know, we we're talking, I'm doing a lot of talking on sustainability right now and it's Pandora's box and it's, it's a giant topic, but at the very least we need to make things that are quality and things that last a long time, you know, keep them in service. Um, I'm skipping eight steps, but after lasting things, one, two, three, four, five, seven, eight, make repairs cool again, you know, mm -hmm. like, like let's not throw things away just because they got a hole in them. Let's find a cool way to repair them and, and, you know, and remind people that patina and, and, you know, and repairs are actually cool. You know, there's a, there's a taste level associated with that. Um, these are big theories we can talk about in more detail, but the idea is that hopefully we're building things that people love and really appreciate and wear for a long time. And hopefully in some cases, give to another family member someday, you know, like their heirloom type of quality. That's how I feel about a lot of the triple lot design stuff. It's like, it's going to last a long time. Right. Well, th that's, that's one of those qualities that the extreme outdoor users have espoused for a long time. Right. It's like, I love this, you know, piece of gear. And so I'm going to repair it or retreat it or, you know, um, you know, do whatever it takes because I've been through wars in it. Right. It's like, I, it's got yeah. the battle scars that I've yeah. repaired. And, um, you know, it, it tells a story, um, 
you know, when you meet up with your friends, you can talk about all the, you know, the climbs that you did, whatever it is. Um, that's one of those things that needs to trickle out more into to the to the casual user, right? The, those of us who um, maybe see product as as more disposable than it than it should be. Um, and I, I think we're starting to see that, right? And and brands like 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 Patagonia, and I know the the North Face is really pushing some of this. Um, I, I don't remember what their upcycle program is called, but it, there's definitely a lot more of that and this emphasis on repair. And and it seems like you know certain consumers are are more focused on that too. Um, you know, how do I make this thing my own? Um, like, how do I rework this product? Um, it, it's a conversation that I had uh, with Nicole Mc, McLaughlin who's, you know, really blown up for her unique takes on footwear, like upcycling, um, really trash and, and other items in, into footwear. Um, but it's this weird dichotomy, right? Of, okay, people want brands and they want to associate themselves with brands and be a part of that and have that, that, uh, you know, be attached to that, be a part of that tribe, but they also want something that's entirely unique. So they want the brand, but they want to reimagine it in a way that no one else has that kind of a product. So it's, it's interesting to see some of those, those things come to light. I'm sure that's something that you're, you're seeing a lot of as well in your work or hopefully we're moving that direction. It se- certainly seems that way. I think so. Yeah. And I think the education piece, you know, here again, when we're close to it, and we design this product and we think about it constantly and we can you know, you name 40 brands, you know, and, and 40 designers and you, you know, you have a very distinct um, uh, point of view on style and all that stuff. I think that is one place where I have certainly not gotten lost. And instead, I'm so acutely aware of how much other people aren't like that, that you really, I do spend a lot of time thinking on the education piece um, uh, and in terms of like awareness, you know, and raising awareness, it's like not everyone thinks about trying to make something specifically their own. In many cases, they open a catalog or open a website and go, oh, yeah, that looks right. Or that's what I was looking for for somebody else, you know, and they, they buy an item as opposed to necessarily always thinking about building a wardrobe or building a kit. And so I think there's a huge opportunity there for, um, for helping remove the guesswork is something you'll, you'll, you'll always hear me say for people where it's like, how do we make it understandable and fun and like desirable uh, in the bigger picture, not just as an item, but like, how does this contribute to the rest of what I already have? You know, how am I more stylish or more capable because of this particular item? Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it all goes back to intention, right? It's like just buying with intention, I think uh, is, I don't know how you, push the public or, you know, push, you know, I, I can do that on my own, but how do you encourage or incentivize people to, to, you know, buy with intention? That's an individual journey, but something it seems like a lot of brands are trying to, trying to crack that. Um, and some brands are doing better than others, but, um, it, it seems like that's what it goes back to. It's these individual decisions that, that people have to make. Like I've, I've really been, um, focused a lot more on thrifting, right? It's like, there's great product that, like you said, because it was made right, um, it's going to last a long time. So why do I need to go buy something new? I could go buy something, you know, for a fraction of the price that, um, you know, I feel this sense of pride in finding it and rescuing it in a way um, and helping it live on. And it's a story that I can tell. And and people kind of swap those stories of like, oh, I found this thing. And um, it's, I, I, I don't know what that journey is for everyone, but it kind of seems like we all need, you know, to make lasting impact, we kind of have to make decisions. Not, we don't all have to thrift, but we have to be thinking more in those terms of how do I uh, buy with intention? 
Well, and here again, we're, we're, we are in this, where we live this, right? Mm -hmm. So you're thinking thrifting. I think a lot of the brands, when I talk to people about sustainability and stuff, it's like one of the first things that we can talk about is the, is the collection and then reselling of things. So it's like, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're sort of nerds about this. So yeah, thrifting, we get why thrifting is cool. Yeah. But the idea of, of collecting things and reselling them and keeping them in play, I think is definitely a big discussion being had by some of the larger brands right now, where it's sort of like, you see the parallel I'm drawing between knowing to thrift versus being told that, Hey, check it out. This is an opportunity to buy this product again or some, in some way, you know what yeah. I mean? It's not really thrifting. It's just sort of reselling. Yeah. Cool. Well, it, it's, it, it's a huge challenge and I don't know how we necessarily saw it. There's no silver bullet. And, and in some ways I, I feel like in some ways we can cause more problems. There's unintended consequences. I, I think back and, and I don't know completely how to feel about uh, the Patagonia don't buy this jacket ad, um, you know, because at the same time, you know, the message is really powerful, but I guarantee you that sales of that jacket went up like crazy. Right. Um, and encouraged, encouraged more buying. Right. So it's, you know, not to be overly critical necessarily of Patagonia in this case, but it, that's the, the challenge that I think the industry faces. And um, again, we're kind of, you know, bringing up more, more problems, I guess, than solutions on, on this, uh, in this conversation, but maybe, maybe we should move on. I don't want people to get down thinking about no this. I think no, a lot no, of opportunity. I, no way. Are you kidding? This is opportunity. Like, mm -hmm absolutely this is an opportunity and this is our responsibility not not mine even i i mean it is your you guys your your students your generation absolutely your responsibility to do it better than 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 we did and because right. you know because there's a generation of us that like like i said was was really trying to do the right thing building meaningful lasting stuff and still now you start to learn a little bit more as you as you get older about kind of what's really happening in some cases not in all cases and it's like okay I'm, I'm in this for a, a long time left, but it's, but it's, and it's mine to fix. Like I, and I, I'm part of the solution and part of drafting the, 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 the way forward. But like, I, I need all the ideas I, I, I can get, or we need all the ideas we can get is in this industry. And I, and it's, it's, you guys have a tremendous opportunity to find new ways to do this that mean more, that, that means more to people. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't just want to have a stack of stuff on the table. Your generation is going to engage with the customer in a totally different way and have them and you have a totally different, different experience than, than I did. And trust me, it's going to be way more fun and way more engaging than, um, you know, dropping a bunch of stuff and, and maybe never hearing about it again. Right. Right. You know? well, well, kind of a, a change of pace here, but I'm curious, how did you, again, kind of going back to your chronology, yeah. how did you go from releasing your own collection to jumping into the industry in a formal way? Yeah. So I'm sewing away on my little home sewing machine. Um, I, I don't think I had started this woman's wedding dress and all the bridesmaids yet, which was completely nuts, by the way. Um, I mean, I, I had believed in myself, but that was really pushing the limits of like risky uh, projects to take on when you need money. But um, I was probably working on it. Um, and the phone rang and uh, it's fall of 99. And it's a, a Swiss German guy saying, hey, I'm from Solomon and we uh, are trying to launch apparel. Um, in so many words, we haven't quite figured it out yet. You know, they had if you guys all know Solomon, they'd done the monocoque ski, they'd had innovations in ski boots, like everything they did changed the paradigm a little bit, you know? And 20 years ago, even in a crowded market, um, why did we need more apparel, you know? So, so we were having to ask ourselves those questions then. What are we going to do to ski wear that's going to make it 
you know, give it a reason to be in this market right now. So anyway, they, they had not been able to figure that out. Um, I, uh, I took this call and I told him, uh, you know, that sounds like an awesome opportunity. Thanks. Anyway, I'm busy with my little fashion thing here. I mean, it's just hilarious, right? Talk about maybe I was completely nuts, Chase. Maybe I was massively over, overconfident in my little dream I had at the time. But so I called Shannon. And I was like, hey, I just had this great conversation with this guy. And she's like, you know, would you mind maybe seeing if you can get that gig before you tell him thanks anyway, you know? So I called him back. Um, I did a bunch of drawings. I flew to Boulder and um, interviewed at the Solomon Design Center and, um, and got the job, um, by, in retrospect, by some sort of by some miracle. Except... I, you know, I was green as grass. I didn't know how to use Illustrator, really. I screwed around on a little bit, but I really didn't know how to use it. I could use a little bit of Photoshop. But what I had was ideas and the ability to sell those ideas, you know. And so they had heard about me as a snowboarder, and he called me up, and that, that was it. I was somehow able to be hired and then launch apparel for, uh, for Solomon. That, that was my next question. You kind of answered it, but how did they find you? It was mostly through the snowboarding side of things. Yeah, there were a couple of people in my life, like one of their footwear guys I had grown up with. Um, mm-hmm. One of my top mentors was, was in the company. There was a woman from Spider, a couple of women from Spider who'd remembered me as an athlete. It was just one of those things where it was like, you know, I, uh, they were just, these were friends of mine and people who knew I had a different sort of fire, I think. I think they also knew that, you know, even if I was just sort of finding my, my, um, my stride as a designer, they knew that there was, that there was a lot of fire and energy and desire there, you know? Um, I, and yeah, and there was, I think I know the answer, but how, how important is, is networking, uh, you know, and, and what you were doing wasn't networking. You were just being a person living life, interacting with people and being a good person and not burning bridges. And, um, yeah. you know, like, so how, how important, you know, has, has that been for you? Um, it's something I always try to hit home with our students. Um, and sometimes it can feel really inauthentic, but the way you did it, I mean, it's just, you're just living your life and, and doing your thing and interacting with people. But how, how impactful has that been for you? I think it's absolutely critical. Um, but the world has changed so much now too, that it's like, it's not maybe not critical in quite the same way. Like I, I, you know, the idea nowadays that very ambitious people, um, are just going to like an aspiring designer just drops a note to the CEO of somebody on LinkedIn of some brand on LinkedIn is like, Hey, check out my stuff. It's like, okay, that's pretty bold. And I admire that, but like, that's the world we live in now where you, you, of course you need to be a decent human. Like that's number one, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you, you get hired for your skill. You also get hired uh, speaking from the perspective of a hiring manager for, you know, when, when, as when, when you're someone that I can imagine working with, you mm-hmm. know, like you might be the most badass ninja on earth, but if I look at you and go, oh, prima donna vibes, not yeah. interested, you know, then forget it. Um, Cause it's so, it's an organism, you know, it's never mm-hmm. about one person. It's like, you, yeah. So you've got to be a good human the networking thing's important, but now it's like, there are so many channels to, to, you know, to, to tell your story within that for sure the human element's key, but you know, you've got to be good at the rest of the, at the rest of the, the, uh, the channels as well. Well, it seems like there's a lot more focus on what can, what are you producing? What value do you create? Right. And, yeah. and um, you know, I think of one industrial designer that's close with our program that, he uses his Instagram as um, as a living, breathing portfolio, and he creates content that draws people in, and people oh, yeah. recognize his value. and And that's how you know if he ever needed a new job, 
I mean, he's got the built-in network, not because he went out seeking the network, but uh, he just attracted people to him. So I, it seems like it's more, there's more of a focus on that, right? Drawing people into your orbit um, by producing something, giving something away. So in this, in this case, I, I'm not sure if we're talking about the same person, but also a great human, also someone you would absolutely yeah. love to have in your orb, you know? Yeah. So, um, but, but no, not, I didn't mean to take anything away from what you were saying. You're absolutely right. That's one of the best examples that I'm aware of right now of like, um, uh, a living thing and modern application of the tools and the desire, uh, you know, to, to, to be a known quantity. Well, n- networking can feel like a, like it's take, 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 right. It's like, I'm in it to get something. Um, whereas I've always been of the mind that if you give something away, like things come back, right. Obviously you don't give, you know, thinking that stuff will come back. You know, if you, if you do it that way, I think the intention is, is wrong and it feels inauthentic, but if you're giving away, um, you know, something of value, I, I'd have to believe a lot of that comes back, um, in, you know, tenfold and it might be long-term. Um, but that's, you know, with this individual in particular, I, I definitely see that, right. He's giving knowledge, giving, he's giving value away and it, and it comes back in, in kind for him. So, um, so I, I, that's kind of where I see things evolving and, and something I try to, to really emphasize for our students, but had wondered how that had impacted you. Um, you know, I, I liked what you said. So it's just being a good human is really the bare minimum. It's not really something that we should talk about, but um, it's, a, it's a given. But. Yeah. Well, and you want, you, want, you, want, you want ninjas, right? I mean, you yeah. want awesome capability, but I'm just saying like within an organization or, or if I'm hiring a support person for my own business, it's like, is this going to be more work than it's worth, you know? Right. Right. Um, uh, and, and especially with young, young people just getting a start, it's very r- rare. I'm trying to think of any instance where I've seen someone who was so good that I just would put up with anything kind of thing. And yeah. even then as a manager, it would be irresponsible to introduce that element into, into other people's lives. So it's right. like, yes, yeah, so there's definitely a delicate balance, but Oh, I mean, ca- great capability is, has got to come along with being a good human. You don't just hire good humans. Right. Yeah. That combination is the the sweet spot. Um, you know, I try to tell the students, um, you know, I, I do one presentation in the spring for all the juniors and seniors where I kind of talk to them about networking and how to break into the industry. And, and I, I just, the, the one big point that I really try to hit home kind of wrapping up what you said is you just want to make your manager's life easier, right? Like think about life from their perspective, right? It's like all the things that they're juggling, all the people that they have to manage, all the timelines. Like if you can be the person that comes in is great to work with and you can make life easier for everybody else. Like I think you're going to, you're going to be a valuable, a valuable asset to the, to the team, to the company. So as soon as you can think in those terms of like, how do I add value to the team? How do I add value to the company? How do I make everyone else's burden lighter? You're, you're going to be in a good position. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have to say just while we're here, I don't know if they'll listen or not, but I've had a number of examples of those types of people who are just uh, amazing and just bring it every time and they're super dependable and even when times are tough you know they'll rise to it and and they're good communicators you know so they'll let you know too uh, uh, you don't need yes people around you need you know you need people who are part of that organism right um and yeah when they're there they're solid gold you know you right. just nothing nothing means more to you as a as a manager than than those kinds of people and i've, I've been lucky to have a lot of them well, th- this has almost turned into a careers podcast. I, I hope you don't mind, but this I, I've really enjoyed this. But um, I, I want—I don't want to gloss over 
you know, the different steps you've taken along the way, um, it's hard to probably distill this down into, you know, a, a couple minutes, but, um, what was your experience like at, at, you know, Solomon versus spider VF? Um, you know, it's hard to wrap all of that up and in, into a short, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can make that, I can make that very, very brief because it's, I think it is important to the audience when you think about this trajectory type of mentality or what happens. So like, at Solomon, I'm hired at a higher level than I was. End of story. So that happened a little bit, you know, just a, like, I shouldn't say that. I probably had the skills of an assistant designer, but I was in a team where I could be a designer and got to really have a point of view. So it goes against a little bit of what I've been saying, where it's like very small team. This guy's got ideas, you know, get to work. And I had good management who helped me past my shortcomings. Very shortly thereafter, I did, you know, I was, I established myself from, from crazy mental hard work and, you know, and, and attitude and personality and being a part of the team and like believing in the whole thing, which is critical too, right? So Solomon turned into a, a senior designer thing over the course of five years. Um, we moved to Europe. Um, so we were operating out of Solomon headquarters in Annecy, France. Um, Google it. And, and next time you go to Europe, mm-hmm. go to Annecy. <laughs> I, I was supposed to take a trip out there this year. But, oh, uh, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, all little Chamonix is like 50 minutes away too. So I mean, oh my God, go to that, go to that region. But anyway, so that was amazing. Um, phone rings at my desk and it's a, uh, um, a Ralph Lauren recruiter, you know, telling me, um, hey, we've, you know, we've kind of been watching what Solomon's doing. The RLX team is hoping to sort of find a new, a new stroke, you know, for that product. Um, there's a lot of things happening. Da, da, da. I'm like, oh my God, why now? You know, like, like. What a dumb thing to say on a podcast, but like, that's what went through my mind. I'm like, we just got to France. This brand has changed my life. I'm completely dedicated to it. I live and breathe Solomon and my dream of all dreams and possible thing is coming calling. What, two years in or three years in, you know? Um, and, and so it was funny. So here again, I kind of had to say, you know what guys, I'm busy right now. <laughs> it was like, crazy, but I couldn't abandon Solomon, you know? Um, and, and so I held them off for as long as I could. Um, I did, took a few interviews, met some people, met Ralph, was completely blown away. You know, like this was my next thing for sure. Yeah. Um, and, uh, was having another conversation that came out of nowhere with a, a big brand from Vancouver too. So I had to, I had spent some time sitting on the hill in France trying to figure out what, what I wanted to do, New York or, you know, or Vancouver. Um, and, uh, I chose to go work for my, my, you know, this hero of mine. And um, so a senior designer at Solomon, small team, to answer your question, all of a sudden, boom, um, Ralph Lauren, um, design director for outerwear, uh, surrounded by unbelievably talented people, you know, um, and in some case, cases wind up mentor, uh, sorry, man- managing people who are, you know, extremely talented, highly educated, um, and, and so how grateful I was to be able to hang uh, in that environment and not just hang, but like make a, make a, you know, really genuine um, contribution during those years. It was just out of this world, but a totally different organization, big company, small team, you know, um, getting some time with, with Ralph, which was always just solid gold, um, getting a massive education in fit and finishing and, you know, working in a New York environment where expectations were just off the charts, you know, uh, and, and I, I showed up kind of to our earlier discussion, thinking I knew something and knowing things, having, having good skills, but holy moly, I got my education at Polo. And Ralph says that too. He thinks of it like a school, you know, for designers. And mm. it absolutely was, it was unbelievable. So, um, 
I'm, I'm, I am not glossing over this, but trying to keep it quick. But so that, so that, so, we, so I lived in New York for a while, but very shortly thereafter, because like, you know, I wasn't snowboarding. I wasn't, I didn't have a car at the time, uh, not having a, a um, uh, God, this is going to sound terrible, but, but I had already had one vintage 911 already. And I like, if I didn't have that in my life, it was really a problem. <laughs> so I was like, these, you know, these old 911s used to be very obtainable. And, and I, I just loved the smell and the experience. And it was part of my DNA. Like I had to get out and rip roads. Like that was that whole thing about being real was inherent to my whole thing. You know, I didn't want to dress up like I was going to go for a drive or get in a race car. I want to go do that stuff. You know, same was true for snowboarding. And I was blessed that the team there let me operate out of Boulder for many years. And so I worked remotely for Ralph Lauren for, for most of my time there. Um, and saw a lot of LaGuardia. That was my trade-off, you know, and spent a lot of time away from my family. But in the end, I was working with still some of my favorite people in the world, getting a massive education, my dream job. And so there were trade-offs. You know, I had to sacrifice to keep the dream alive. So that was five years there. Um, launched a, a couple of other internal brands. And then I just started to see that this carte blanche era that we'd had for five years was starting to shift, you know, the pendulum swings and maybe you want to do lighter weight, lower, lower cost product in the same DNA. And so I just knew that my skill set might not be necessary in the same way. And um, that's right around the time that Spider showed up in Boulder, uh, new CEO, new head of marketing, knew they had to turn the brand around. And, um, and here again, my, my former life, catches up and my name gets thrown in the hat. And um, I was fortunate enough to land that job and run that team for uh, six years or so and have a, had a fantastic run at Spider until about 2015. I'll pause there in case you've got other questions. Well, I know, I, I, I think this is great. I just apologize that we are glossing over a lot. I, all of this deserves its own podcast. <laughs> probably so many insights that, that you, you gained from each of those experiences. <clears throat> yeah. Well, the biggest one probably um, is I managed no one at Solomon. Um, mm. I managed um, three people at Ralph Lauren. And then I, my, my org chart had 25 people on it when I landed at Spider. So wow. they weren't all direct, but they were, but I'd never been responsible for so many humans um, and so many people's livelihood and so many people's, um, you know, expectations and hopes and dreams. Um, I, I'm, it's so funny. I've, I've got to be careful. I started to get kind of emotional saying that it's like, um, that was a huge one, man. That was big to have, uh, to go from, um, you know, me, 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 like to be, to be honest, like, you know, a young dad, I've got to be worried about number one to all of a sudden being, having to be worried about having to concern myself with so many other people was, um, massive. That was heavy. And that was, those were hard years. I mean, that was, that was a big, big job. Well, I, I don't know if that's one of the, one of, I, I don't think I hear that from, from, people in senior management often like that dynamic of, you know, the weight you hear the weight of, of leadership or, or it's the loneliness. Right. Um, but I don't know if I've heard people get emotional necessarily about, man, the people that work for me are, you know, I'm responsible, you know, for leading this team in a direction where they're going to be taken care of. Right. And they're going to be successful. And, uh, I don't know if I've really heard about it that way. Um, which, well, I'm a terrible is, manager. I mean, I, 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 I am such a, hum, such a humanistic person that this idea of being some cold, distant manager who's just like, I, I, I'm, t I'm not great at that. I, there, I just, on a, on a public podcast, I just said I'm a terrible manager. <laughs> I, think I'm a, I think I'm a very good mentor, 
but in the historical sense of having to be some distant leader, I spend 10 hours a day with these people, you know, and I, I loved my teams. I loved the people I worked with, great friends, people I totally admired who, you know, like I said, in many cases were like working their tails off to, to try to make things happen. I mean, how do you not start to like admire and like love the people you're around? So it's like, it's a weird dynamic, you know? So I, of course I gave a damn, of course I wanted to see, um, you know, like you're like in your mind, you're going, oh my God, please don't leave. And at the same time, you're like, go crush life, go be right. the best you can be, you know, but you yeah. have these periods where you're like, oh my God, nothing can happen to my team right now. You know, it's, it's exhausting, but um, I don't know, maybe that's the, maybe that's a great, I don't know if it's a great management style, but in terms of like wanting people to succeed and be great, um, that's where I, that's where I came. That's, that's where I, not past tense. That's what I still do. I want people to go and, 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 and crush it, you know, um, because right. I was given great opportunities. So it's just, I'm just paying, all I'm doing is paying it forward. It's not rocket science. Right. Well, you're <laughs> doing that here again today. So, you know, paying it forward in a, in a different way to the, to the next generation of designers. But yeah. Um, so from spider, you, you then you took one more, well, you have, you have a couple more stops on your journey. Well, we, you know, the new leadership came in, it was time for a regime change. I, I left spider in 2015 and went, um, and, and, you know, I just use the word trajectory. You, you think Solomon, Ralph Lauren, Spider, what now? And that Nike, got to be Nike. It's got to be at the time Under Armour, you know, whatever, like that kind of thing. Like those, those were big, big players. But I, instead, um, I, I discovered this small brand. Um, a colleague of mine from Solomon connected me with a small brand from San Francisco called Triple Ot Design, um, which is, you know, a, a primarily made in USA, direct consumer you know, um, weekly drops, uh, crazy online community, um, crazy secondary market. I mean, holy moly, in one brand, everything we're talking about for the future of retail and the future of engagement and the Mm. future of product and the future of make and the future of like why we do things. Um, They didn't know it at the time. I just saw a a crazy cult following and some really cool people and joined this brand. And I I worked with Tad for... um, for I don't know, three and a half years or so before the, the before the, um, the the VF stint came up, but the, the the important thing here is that it it absolutely opened my eyes after what fifteen years of traditional wholesale. Triple Ot was my education in in the new model, um, mm. and it, it's completely changed my perspective on 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 really everything I do. You know, so that was that was the next big transition, and I still I'm still associated with the brand and still. Um, still very close to that team and, and, um, and admire what they do. Well, and then, and then you mentioned, you know, you, you go and work for VF and this is after they have moved to, to Denver. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, hard to get into too many of the details. there. are a tough time to start at a new brand, you know, a few months before COVID happens and, yeah. you know, and, um, uh, I'll suffice to say it was a short stint that I loved and worked with amazing people and just had a, had a tremendous experience there. Um, I, you know, obviously they're, they're uh, having a, having a very good run at the moment. You know, the Supreme news was super exciting. I'm, I'm very excited for everyone over there, but it just wasn't uh, at the time. It wasn't, I guess it wasn't meant to be. It was short, but meaningful. Great, great people. Well, and, and I know you worked um, on, on the innovation side of things and that's probably, uh, has that been a theme for you throughout your careers? I, I mean, always kind of pushing, always trying to do things that are meaningful, impactful. Um, 
I, I have to ask because innovation is a word that gets thrown around all the time and it doesn't really have a meaning, you know, you know, when you use it, you know, when yeah. it's thrown around. So it's like sustainability, right? It's the same thing. Um, what, what does that, what does that word mean to you, innovation within a company? Um, well, I, you know, you were, you're right in that even at Solomon, Solomon Polo, I don't know, Spider, if we got any or not, but I've had a number of patents over the years, you know, and like this whole concept of, um, of authenticity and wanting to here again, like provide the consumer with something that they hadn't experienced before. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully their day on the mountain or on the trail or whatever is elevated by way of these ideas, you know, um, it's not just a peer for peer Oh, uh, you know, we're one. This brand is better than X brand. I, I, I don't think that way, and I, I don't like it when when brands reward for that um, within design groups. You know, the cop, copy is not a word that's not in my vocabulary. Um, so it's like we, I always wanted it to be like a, a new a, a solution. Not, you know, not if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Okay, I get that. But in some cases, there were ways to there. There's always a way to improve something. You know, mm-hmm. and now uh, in terms of innovation we got away with a lot there for a long time for for a while it was it was how far can we go you know how what how cool can we make this or whatever and now it can't really be or it shouldn't be that way it has to be about how are we making this you know what impact reduction can this approach have you know as opposed to seeing just how far we can go it shouldn't be a Formula One program all the time. That there's a place for that. We have to have that crazy cutting edge, at whatever cost, you know, progression. But the bigger picture, I think, has to has to tie into innovation for the sake of, of sustainability and and you know, coming at this consciously. Right. I I like how you describe that innovation being more about rethinking the entire process, rethinking how product is made, or you know, whatever it might be. I. I I think that that was a helpful description because again, it's, I imagine in, in each company, innovation has a different meaning. Um, you know, the roles are slightly different. Um, so I thought that was really helpful. Um, what, what kind of led to your decision to kind of put your name, you know, out there? I mean, your name is already out there, but um, to do that formally in, you know, it, in terms of creating a business that carries your name. Um, what, what, I mean, you kind of alluded to some of this with, with VF, um, but what led to, to that decision of going striking out? Um, and we can get into some of, you know, what's the difference been working for yourself versus working for, uh, a, a corporation that has shareholders. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of differences, but what led yeah. to some of those decisions? Oh, I mean, I think it comes back to everything we talked about in the, in the beginning. It's like their life is short, you know, um, when I'm, when I'm sitting down with people and asking them about, you know, or people are asking me, I should say about careers, what should I do? How should, you know, what do you, what do you, you know, uh, and doing mentorship type stuff. It's like, let's start with what the, I don't like the term end game, but in some way, like, let's talk about end game a little bit first. Like, what do you want out of your life? What is the dream dream? Um, for you, if you know what that is, and not everyone does, but like if you do, or if you've got any, 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 any flutter of what the dream is, let's talk about the dream, and then we can start to come back from this. Because I, I think my basic dream was to have my own brand and live somewhere where I could get outside and have adventures. You know, it was always about 
the car and it was always about having a racetrack or they, you know, these aspirational, like big, big dreams. Like, uh, I, you know, I want to have an old Porsche I want to run on a racetrack. I want to be able to snowboard on good, in good conditions, you know, um, and, and live in a relatively safe place for my family, you know, like basic, pretty basic stuff. Um, and so I, you know, I started working back from that. It's like, okay, these incredible opportunities at, at Solomon, you don't say no to that. That was a, an incredible experience. I was on my own. I went into a company, you know, um, best, best decision, best opportunity ever. There's no way I was going to say no to Polo. That was another experience. And like I said, another level of education. So like this investment in, in some cases, in some, some sacrifice, you know, because it was hard to live in New York with a two-year-old and, and, and a newborn. But you make these sacrifices, you know, in the investment in the future. And, uh, and then, you know, Spider was getting closer to the, the places and the way that I wanted to continue living, you know, like Boulder was a, a nice place to live. Um, and it's like, so it's just kind of keeping the dream alive, in, but all with all coming back to those tenants. Like those were tenants that I set years before. And I was like, okay, is this in the, is this in the realm or not? You know, and it's not to say that I wouldn't drop everything if Tom Ford calls tomorrow. Um, you know, and go live in Italy for a few years or wherever, sure, that, that would take me off the path, but I know the experiences would just be completely next level. And so, you know, so you would make that, that sacrifice again. Um, this is funny because I don't know if I'm answering your, your question at all, but the idea is that like, I do like to start with what you want out of your life so that career doesn't become everything, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and yet when there are times, uh, when the times come up, when career has to take precedent, Weigh the weigh the weigh the weigh the experience, weigh the sacrifice, weigh it against your your end game, and and um and you know figure out if it's an investment you want to make or not. Right, when Collier is is that investment right now? Um, well, it, it what, is, yeah. yeah. Um, what, what has the experience been like day to day? Um, you know, working I, rather than working with one brand, now you get the opportunity to work with with a few brands uh, at the same time. What, what is that like to be able to really pick kind of along the lines of what you were just saying, right? Pick, choose the, the projects that you're passionate about, choose the companies that align with your values. Has that been kind of a freeing experience for you? Yeah, it has. And thank you for, for reminding me. Um, I got, I got on the, uh, on the, on the big picture track a little bit on my last answer, but it's like, you're right. It has to do with being able to well, if you're lucky enough to, like, I mean, for starters, you're, you're, you know, you're beating the pavement. You're, you're now you're a salesperson. You're out there like, you know, drumming up business like this, this stuff yeah. doesn't just, you know, land on your plate. So it's like, there are aspects and major sacrifices to going out on my own. I just, you know, I'm finally feeling like I'm really ready to go do it in a big way. And I feel like my, I'm not just a, you know, I'm, I'm trying all the time chase, like, for, for 15 years, I've been a soldier. I've been Luke, you know, and I'm trying to move at least into a Ben Kenobi kind of like phase um, and maybe Yoda someday. But like, it's not just about design anymore. Like I have enough experience and message and vision now to be able to, to be a, a strategic guide as opposed to just, I know I can deliver good design. Like mm -hmm. it's more just like, you know, what's the bigger picture? Like where, where are we going with this relationship? You know, like it's that whole thing. So, um, so going out on my own, uh, the thing that I missed in the last answer was it's the type of work that, you, that I, I want to do. And I, I'm not like trying to be spoiled or say, I don't want to do that. But there are things I just don't really want to do anymore. You know, or I know well enough now that it's like, man, that's kind of, that's not interesting. I did those things when I had to do them. I don't necessarily want to do them now. I want to be more creative. I want to be a strategist. I want to, you know, I want to solve problems. 
So, so having the courage, I guess, if that's the right word now to really go out on my own had to do with having had invested in, you know, myself and my capability for the last couple of decades, you know, um, I didn't know what I didn't know before, you know, and, and now I'm, I'm developed enough to be able to really make a contribution to people and uh, to, to brands and, and, and individuals in a meaningful way. Right. It, it seems like that journey, it's, it's interesting, the journey that you took, because you start by going out on your own, right? Putting out what, what you're passionate about, what you're interested in into the world. And then you, you've kind of, you, you, you've land in the industry and have this incredible career arc. Um, and then you come back to, okay, I'm working on things that I'm passionate about again. And not, not to say that you weren't passionate about what you were doing throughout your career, but it's interesting full circle that, that journey, right. Of being able to, to kind of choose what, what you're interested in. again, it, it seems like a lot of our students are passionate about that or interested in that, that journey, um, for themselves. Um, so with that said, I, I want to tease out what, what are, you know, there's, there's this glamour that comes with, you know, working for yourself and all that. And, you know, but what, what are the, the downsides for, for our students who, who think that it's all glamour? Oh God, I was just going to say glamour. I don't know. I, I mean, the glamour for me is, is being able to, you know, sort of plan my day with, with, uh, with, without quite, you know, so many meetings or nowadays so many zoom calls or whatever, like, that's that's glamorous what what is hard is you know the uh, the absence of benefits the absence of you know whatever uh, consistent pay all of those things that come with you know with a nice a nice uh, a nice corporate job for lack of a better term it's like those are all really nice things to have um and so those are those are big trade-offs you know if you're going to embark on this you really need to um to, to do the math, you know, and my, my wife would be like, what are you talking about? And they're like, you don't do any of that stuff, but it's like, you do kind of, you need to prepare yourself for the absence of some of those, um, uh, presumed consistencies that a real job, um, often brings, you know? Um, and those are really nice things. It's great to have good benefits. It's great to, you know, to, to be, be part of a company's growth, you know, at, at, at certain levels of management or what have you. It's like, those are really nice things. But, um, you know, but if, but it, but depending on what you want to do with your day is when you have to kind of decide, you know, if that's for you or not, you know. And like I said earlier, investment in that time, in yourself, in understanding the inner workings of these, of these, of, of, of a company, any size company is, is a, is something I would definitely advise before just breaking out. Right. Well, and making your mistakes, um, on someone else's dime is, is helpful too, right? It's like before putting all your eggs in, in one basket, you know, and putting yourself on the line. Um, it's, it, I imagine it's really helpful to be able to go and like you said, go work for a company, um, go make mistakes, go learn, um, go see how a company actually runs, see how product is made. Um, you'll have so much more to offer. Um, you know, if, if your career arc is, is structured that way, right. Where you have all those learning experiences and then, then you have something to offer later on. Um, I imagine. Well, um, you, it's good to have something in your CV too, when you're going out looking for investors to launch your dream, you know, right. like that's, that's, that's also helpful. I mean, I know there are a lot of people out there with great ideas. Finding people to fund them is another story altogether. And yeah, you can, live off top ramen and, and grow and build something organically for 10 years, you know, until it's ready for investment or whatever, or five years. And people do that. And that's rad, 
but like massive sacrifice, you know, to just, to just sort of put all the eggs in, in, in a, in a, in a brand launch kind of concept, but people do it and it's awesome. Right. Right. Well, a couple more questions and, and we'll wrap up from, you know, after, after those, but, um, from your perspective, um, you know, looking back over your career as a self self-taught designer, um, what are some of the advantages or disadvantages, um, that, that, um, has, has brought to your career? Like, have, have you noticed anything that, you know, coming from the outside, being self-taught gave you some kind of advantage? Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I came at it. The, um, you know, like I said, there were, there were some hard times there transitioning from snowboarder to, to designer because of the things I didn't know. And at the same time, as soon as I was in an organization where I could apply the ideas that were brand, brand new because I wasn't, you know, hindered by history or anything like that, it was like, that's when that stuff started to really take hold, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's a, it's a great question. Um, I personally, I've just always, like I said, tried to come at things in a totally unique way. And, um, and that's, that's for the last 15, 20 years, 20 years, really. Now it's like, like I was saying earlier, we don't have any choice, but to, you know, so the product that I'm working on right now with my own name on it finally has, has, is everything to do with reimagining the, um, the material sourcing process, the tailoring process that, you know, is created in 3d, um, sewn locally, you know, like all of these aspects of, okay, I'm not trying to be Ralph anymore. Like I'm trying to make a pure statement of what I believe it may or may not be a business, but it's going to be a pure statement of what I believe is, is one way to go forward in this industry, you know? And so that's, that's, uh, that is um, very much still a part of, of my approach, you know, is to not take anything as the way we have to do it because God knows in apparel, that's nothing about that is true. Right. You might be led to believe that that's true, but it's not necessarily true. Right. Well, may, maybe this is a good, uh, good way to wrap things up, but what, what keeps you going and what do you look forward to in the future? Oh, gosh. Um, like I said earlier, like the people piece has always been so important that I would, uh, I'm, I look forward to trying to create opportunity for others, you know? So, um, so whether that is going to be finding new ways to create capability, like on the make side of things, you know, like, like sewing, like what's the, what's going to be, or maybe it's not sewing. What's the new make, you know, like, and what do we do even in this country to find new ways to wrap bodies in fabric that aren't necessarily related to the old ways of doing that, you know, mm-hmm. like, yes, we're going to have to tailor material. We're going to have to cut material, but how we put things together might not require sewing capability. Sewing is terrible. I mean, we all know, all of you are laughing right now who sew. You're like, yeah, it's terrible. I don't want to, you know, like sewing is, it's hard. It's not terrible. Sometimes it's terrible. But like, there's a reason we don't have manufacturing in this country anymore. And that's probably the reason, you know, it's like, that is hard. And there's a brain trust that's aged out and there's a desire to sew that might not be there anymore. So how do we find cool new ways to make things? You know, these are the kinds of things that I'm like up in the middle of the night thinking about. Um, but in the end, I think it has to do with creating opportunity and like finding ways to like help people have some of the great experiences I've had, even though I think those experiences are going to be totally different. And I hope they are. And in many cases, they need to be. Right. Well, JJ, how do people stay in touch with you and, and everything that you're working on here in the future? Because you've got a lot coming down the pipeline. Um, how's the best way to stay in touch? Yeah, I'd call your brands. Uh, one word on Instagram. And then that's the same for my website and my contact information is on there. 
as well. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you've been generous with your time. We went well over the 45 minutes that I said we'd take, yeah. uh, but it was, I, so it, it was fun and I appreciate you taking time. I'd learned a lot. Um, and I think this is going to be really valuable for, for students and anyone else who listens. Um, you've, you've, you know, have contributed so much to the industry and, and more to come, right? Like there's a whole nother couple chapters. Um, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what comes next for you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And like I said, when we first met and I, I'm so impressed by your program up there and I just feel like you guys are, I've really got, got a, a feeling for what's, what's happening and what's going to happen. And I'm, I'm happy to have been a part of it. So thank you so much. Well, like you said, there's, there's a lot of opportunity out there. Um, so I, I think that's, that's the key. So again, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor industry leaders and enthusiasts, subscribe and listen wherever podcasts are found or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast.